Amen. Well, it's a great pleasure to be with you here this morning at Eden Baptist Church. I remember when uh, uh, your pastor Dan wrote me a while back and we agreed on this date. I've been looking forward to being here and seeing uh, this, this uh, work that has been growing over the years. Uh, I've known Dan now for several years as, as uh, we, we got to know each other at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in his uh, program that he was in there. And, uh, but to be here and see the way the Lord has blessed is a great thing. And we, I, I rejoice with you and pray that uh, even greater days ahead will be the case as God continues His work of grace in your midst. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at a portrait of God from Ephesians 1, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Uh, that is really glorious. It is an amazing picture of the one God who is three. And it's, uh, it, it's one of the richest passages, really, of anywhere in the Bible to be able to see kind of spelled out for us the ways in which the Father, the Son, and the Spirit work in their own distinctive contributions to accomplish the one work of God in saving His people from their sin. So we will behold the Trinitarian God of our salvation this morning from Ephesians 1, verses 1 to 14. And as I begin, I just uh, want to ask you the question, have you learned yet to read your Bibles with Trinitarian glasses on? My goodness, I learned this not that many years ago, uh, to be able to see in the Scripture indicators of the Trinity, which are just glorious and amazing, that I had just read over. I mean, I grew up uh, in a Christian home at a Baptist church and, and uh, have been reading my Bible since the time I could read. I imagine my Bible was among the first things that I would read as a boy growing up. But I still remember the time in my life after I had been teaching theology yet for some years, and the Lord helped me begin seeing indicators of the Trinity in the Scriptures uh, that have been stunning. And it's just a joy uh, to be able to share some of these things with you. So I trust this morning that uh, through what we look at together, that you too will purchase a pair of Trinitarian glasses, right, by which you can read your Bibles and see more clearly indicators of the Trinity. Well, this morning I'm going to start with reading through this passage together first, and then we're going to take a look in the first few verses of Ephesians 1, something of the contours of the doctrine of the Trinity, and, and see there that really just in the opening verses, how Paul, the way Paul thinks of the father-son relationship is quite telling. It, it helps us see that there are these two ways in which the, the, uh, the, that Paul sees father and son, both of which are absolutely essential for a correct understanding of the Trinity. And then following that opening in, in verses 1 and 2, then we'll look at the distinctive roles of father, son, and spirit in verses 3 to 14 as we see how these relate to our salvation in Christ. Well, let's read first of all, if you would like to follow along in your Bibles, Ephesians 1 verses 1 to 14. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Translation. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed, bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. 
In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed with him, in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. It's an amazing passage and so much here, so much richness, and our focus will be primarily on what we can learn from this passage on who, the, who God is as the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Well, it begins in the opening two verses of Ephesians 1 as Paul thinks about Father and Son. Let me read again the opening two verses, and we see here two themes that are evident in the Father-Son relationship. Paul writes in verses 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when you think of the doctrine of the Trinity, there really are two main pillars, you might think in terms of a visual image, two pillars that uphold this giant block doctrine of the Trinity. And both pillars have to be in place in order for that doctrine to be upheld. If either one of them is missing or is weak, the doctrine crumbles. It cannot be held up without both pillars being in place. And these two pillars really are two themes that relate to who the Trinity is. And the first one, the first theme that we see in Ephesians 1.1 is the distinction theme. Distinction. That Father, Son, and Spirit are distinct from each other. The Father is the Father, not the Son. The Son is the Son, not the Spirit. They have to be distinct from each other or else they collapse into Unitarianism. You see that? If Father, Son, and Spirit are merely three names for the same person, as I am at least three names, Bruce, Mr. Ware, Jody's husband, uh, that's my wife, uh, I'm at least those three names, well, they, they all collapse because it's referring to the same person. But that's not what Father, Son, and Spirit refer to. They refer to distinct persons. And we can see this is what Paul has in mind in Ephesians 1.1. Notice he says that he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will not of Christ Jesus, but by the will of God, which is shorthand there for God the Father. I mean, I think you can tell that in part because that's the way Paul oftentimes uses the word theos, uh, God, as we have it translated in English. Uh, He uses it oftentimes in Trinitarian context as shorthand for God the Father. In fact, you can really tell this is the case because look at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's pretty clear in context that Paul has in mind God as Father. So back in verse 1, he says that he then is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of the Father. So the Father wills that he would be an apostle of Christ. This is not the will of Christ per se, although obviously Christ would have affirmed this, would have embraced it, but nonetheless it doesn't originate with Christ. His calling comes from the Father to represent, to be a witness of, to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. So you can see there then he's thinking of the Father and the Son distinctly. Even though they are related, even though they are in a father-son relationship, they nonetheless are distinct from each other. The father is the one who commissions Paul. And Paul then goes to represent not the father per se, not the spirit per se, but the son most directly. The most focused attention of Paul's own ministry is of Christ and him crucified and risen. So indeed, Paul sees father and son as distinct. Now, one other little tip here that we'll see more of in a moment uh, is that in that father-son relationship, he also sees a priority to the father, does he not? So this this, uh, commissioning comes from the father to represent his son. So it's not the son per se who calls Paul to represent Christ, but it is the father who does this. So there is a kind of primacy, uh, an ultimate authority that resides with the father that we see hinted at in this text, but it will be developed much more fully, we'll see, in the verses that follow. So father, son distinct, 
And also we can see at least a hint in this text of the primacy that the Father has as the one who has ultimate authority and who commissions then Paul to be the one who would represent Christ, be, a, be a, an apostle of Christ. Now, compare that to verse 2 where he thinks of the father-son relationship differently. Notice he says in verse 2, grace and peace, gra- grace to you and peace from God the Father and, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh my, isn't that amazing? Grace to you and peace. Who alone can give grace and peace? I mean, goodness, I think so many times as a dad in my own home, with friction that might be there or difficulties with, with a sibling relationships or even in a marriage relationship. Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if we can just bestow grace and peace? Only God can give grace and peace. So what does Paul say here? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus who, who is His Son. So indeed, that and indicates, on the one hand, a continuation of the notion of distinction. Because the Father is the Father, the Son is the Son, and that's clear also in verse 2. But more importantly, there is an equality that exists. An equality, which indeed is this second pillar of the Trinity. We have to have not only distinction, Father, Son, and Spirit distinct from each other, or, or our doctrine of God collapses into Unitarianism, but we also have to have an equality of Father and Son where each is equally God. There is one God who is Father and Son and Spirit. The equality that exists among the Trinity grounds our monotheism. So we have to have Trinitarian view to understand the distinction of Father, Son, and Spirit, but a monotheistic view to understand there is one God. So we as Christians are Trinitarian monotheists. Not, Not Unitarians, Unitarian monotheists, nor polytheists, believers in many, many gods. No, one God who is three. And let me just uh, uh, develop just a tiny bit more the kind of equality that exists among the Trinitarian persons, which is unique. So far as I know, it is a unique kind of equality. You know, there, there are different ways in which two things might be equal. For example, you and I are equal because we each have the same kind of nature. Yeah, you have a human nature, I have a human nature, and hence we are equally human. We are equal to each other because we have the same kind of nature. So that's an equality of same kind, and there's a sense in which that's true in the Trinity. It's, it's, a, it's a bit trivial in light of what we'll see in a moment, but it is true that they, they each have the same kind of nature. The Father has a divine nature. The Son has a divine nature. The Spirit has a divine nature. So in that sense, they have an equality of same kind, but their equality is more profound coming in a moment. There's another way in which things might be equal. Uh, we, we might call this a, an equality of proportionality. Imagine a pie that has been divided into three equal pieces. So each is one-third of the pie. Well, each piece is equal to the other piece because each is the same proportion, right? Each is one-third. And so that's a, that's, an, that's a kind of equality. That's an equality of proportionality. Well, that's also true of the Trinitarian persons. Each one possesses the same proportion of deity. What is that in the Trinity? The Father is one-third God, right? Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. The Father is 100% God. The Son is 100% God. The Holy Spirit is 100% God. So yeah, indeed, they do have also an equality of proportionality. But in the Trinity, this is the most significant way in which the three persons are equal. They have an equality of identity. An equality of identity where the Father's nature is the identically same nature as the nature of the Son. And the Son's nature is the identically same nature as the nature of the Spirit. One nature, nature by the way, is the collection of all of the essential attributes of God. His holiness, His righteousness, justice, knowledge, wisdom, His, his, uh, uh, his love and goodness. All of the essential attributes of God 
comprise the nature of God. And the nature of the Father is the identically same nature as the nature of the Son. And the nature of the Son is the identically same nature as the nature of the Spirit. So one nature, hence one God. But three distinct expressions, personal expressions of that one undivided divine nature. So you see, in the doctrine of the Trinity, we have to have both of these pillars, don't we? We have to have the distinction pillar. Father, Son, and Spirit distinct from each other, distinct persons, distinct personal expressions of that one nature. But we also have to have equality, identity even, an equality of identity where there is one nature that is the common possession of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Two themes, both of which are hinted at here in the opening two verses of Ephesians 1. Now, here's one other verse, just to uh, uh, confirm that, in fact, this is taught in the Bible elsewhere. Just one other passage, I think, which so beautifully reflects this, is the opening verse of John's Gospel. John 1.1, John writes, In the beginning was the Word. Now listen, And the Word was with God. Which theme? Distinction, right? One with the other. The two of them are together. And so there is a distinction between the Father and the Son. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Equality, right? The Son is equal to the Father, indeed, as each is equally, fully God. So, one God, but three distinct expressions of that. We need equality and distinction in understanding the Trinity correctly. All right, now moving on into verses 3 to 14, we see now ways in which the Father, Son, and Spirit work in distinct ways. That is, their distinction of persons is manifest in distinct roles, distinct functions, distinct ways in which they work in the world, and yet each of those ways come together in a unity of work as the one work of God, and yet that one work of God is manifest by particular things the Father does, particular things the Son does, particular things the Spirit does to comprise the whole of the work of the one God. So first of all, let's start with the Father. This is where Paul begins in Ephesians 1.3. I think it's appropriate for us to begin there as well. When you look at Ephesians 1 and ask the question, what's the distinct role of the Father? I think this might be a summary statement of it. The Father is the grand architect of our salvation. The Father is the grand architect of our salvation. That's the, that, that is, He's the one who designed it. He's the one who planned and purposed our salvation. He's the one who has overarching authority to set in place everything that will take place through the Son and through the Spirit is the outworking of the plan and the purpose of the Father. So indeed, this is why Paul begins in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, I have oftentimes thought, you know, Paul did not have to have written it that way. He could have given a, a more generic statement of blessing to God for all the blessings God has brought to us, and that would have been true, true enough, but not precise enough evidently, for the Apostle Paul. True enough, but not precise enough. He, he, he wanted to make clear that this was the particular domain of the Father to grant to us believers, all of us who end up being in Christ through faith in Christ, that, that it was the work of the Father to design, to grant, as it were, all of the blessings we receive in this life and in the life to come for all of eternity. Oh my goodness, there is so much more the Father has for us. We've just tasted the first fruits, as we know. So all of those blessings that will come to us are designed by the Father. They ultimately root in His own plan and purpose. So indeed, blessed be, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, Father, has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now notice, in Christ. So indeed, all the blessings that we receive are designed by the Father, but are brought about, realized 
actualized through the work of the Son. So the Son, as we'll see in a few minutes here, is the one who brings about, who accomplishes the work necessary for the blessings that the Father has designed for us to have for those to come to us. They're only through Christ. So every blessing that we have now and for eternity, designed by the Father and, and accomplished by the work of the Son, I think the Spirit is also here in verse 3. Now, not all commentators agree on this, but I would argue for this. In verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Now, spiritual blessing, you have to pause for a minute and wonder what that is. What's a spiritual blessing? Some people have thought that this relates to spiritual uh, uh, benefits like forgiveness of sin. I mean, that's the context here, right? Forgiveness of sin and redemption that takes place that we receive. Spiritual as opposed to physical blessings like food and clothing and shelter. But I find it very difficult to think that that's the way Paul is thinking here, of spiritual as opposed to physical. That, that's, a, that's a sort of a Platonic way of thinking, maybe even a Gnostic way of thinking, but it's not a particularly biblical way of thinking, right? I mean, goodness, think of the Lord's Prayer. What, what's, the first, what's the first request we bring to the Father in the Lord's Prayer? Our, uh, pray this way, Jesus says, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Pretty physical, isn't it? Indeed, every good and perfect gift, James 1.17, is from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. I just find it very difficult to think that Paul was actually distinguishing here spiritual blessings as opposed to those material, physical things that don't really matter. I don't think so. So what's the other option? Really is to say these are blessings that actually come to us personally, existentially, subjectively by the work of the Spirit. So they are Spirit-wrought blessings. I think that's what this is shorthand for. Spiritual blessings are spirit-wrought blessings that come from the design of God in the heavenly places, but they come to us personally through the work of the Spirit. So, in a sense, then, the, the Father is the one who designs all the blessings that we will have in this life and for eternity, all of them accomplished by the work of the Son, but all of them activated in us, you know, made real in our lives through the ministry of the Spirit. Now, let me just point out quickly to you some other ways in which this passage highlights uh, the, the uh, architectural role of the Father, the designer, the one who planned and purposed all things. Just as you keep reading in verses 4 and 5, notice that it is the Father specifically, not God generically, who is the one who stands behind these wonderful benefits that happen. So verse 4, just as He chose us, who's the He? Who does that re pronoun refer to? This has got to be the Father, right? You go back to verse 3, blessed be the God and Father. Now verse 4, just as He, here's the other clue, He chose us in Christ. So the in Christ signals, ah, this has got to be the Father then who chooses us to, to be in His Son. So indeed, this is the Father's blessing. He chose us. You know, we, we talk about, I talk about, I teach on the, the doctrine of divine election. And it's not wrong to use that language. Indeed, God did choose us before the foundation of the world. But more precisely, we should talk about the election of the Father. The Father elected us to be uh, brought into Christ by whom we would be saved. And He made that choice of who would be His own in eternity past, before He created the world. He chose those who would be His, who would be brought to Christ, who would be His own sons. As we read on in, in verse 5, in love, He predestined us. Again, before eternity passed, He's the one who established our destiny. That's what predestination means, to establish a destiny in advance. Predestined. He established our destiny to be none other than gasp. Sons of God. Children of God. How would he do this? Only as he sent his own son to do the work necessary that we might become sons and daughters of God. Incredible. Well, this is all the work of the Father. 
to elect us to be His own, to be, in the end, holy and blameless, to predestine us to be His own children. This is the work of the Father to do this. Let's, let's just realize what a glorious thing it is to be chosen by the Father. You know, honestly, just to take a moment on this, I grieve. I grieve. I used to get angered, but I don't get angry anymore. I just grieve over the fact that so many people in our churches, Bible-believing churches across America, have such a negative view of the doctrine of election. And the reason I grieve over that is because it's so clear that for Paul, he is celebrating the, 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 the incredible reality that the Father has chosen us to be his own before the foundation of the world. And if that had not been true, we wouldn't be here. We are here as the saved people of God as the result of a choice the Father made before He created the heavens and the earth. You despise election, you despise your salvation. It's that simple. Because the Father is the one who chose this to be. You know, I, it's interesting, isn't it? The, the Jewish people, ancient Israel, seemed not to have a problem with the fact that they were the chosen. In fact, I have a, a, a novel at home that I've read a, a few times, three or four times. I really love this novel uh, by Chaim Potok, who's a Jewish novelist. And, and the title of the, of the novel is The Chosen. I mean, it just captures this identity of conservative uh, uh, Judaism, right? The chosen people. Well, indeed, my friends, we Christians are the chosen and so we realize our salvation has ultimately nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with the Father who will have mercy on whom He has mercy, is the one who has shown mercy on the likes of you and me to then design and implement the whole plan of salvation that we might be in the end holy and blameless like His Son is, that we might be in the end His children enjoying all of the, the fruit and the benefit of being children of God. What a gracious God the Father is. Now notice one more thing real quickly on the Father. Skip down with me now to verse 9. Verse 9, here's an amazing statement that helps us understand that the Father is the one who stands behind everything that happens with the Son. So we read in verses, uh, at the end of verse 8, in all wisdom and insight, now verse 9, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention, which He purposed. You see all those pronouns? Who is this? Well, the key is the last phrase, in Him. That's in the Son. So that signals the fact that the previous he's and him's and his's refer not to the Son, not to the Spirit, but to the Father himself. So let me read again now verse 9. In all wisdom and insight, he the Father made known to us the mystery of his, the Father's will, according to his, the Father's kind intention, which he, the Father, purposed in him, the Son. Do you see it? So indeed, it is the Father who purposes, who wills, who, who plans, who devises, who designs what it is that will take place in salvation. And, and, and it employs, as it were, the Son to be the one to accomplish this work. So indeed, the Father then, <clears throat> when you look carefully at this text is the grand architect of our salvation, the wise designer who has put in place everything that it was accomplished through the Son and that will be brought to us as blessings of our lives. Praise be to the Father. Now, what about the Son? The Son, if the Father is the grand architect of our salvation, the Son is the one through whom the glorious accomplishment of salvation takes place. The Son is the one through whom the, glor the glorious accomplishment of salvation takes place. And in our passage this morning, the main focus on that, the work of the Son, is in verse 7. Look with me at verse 7. In Him, now that's Christ, the reason we know that, the Him there is, is Christ, because look at the end of verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace, that's the Father's grace, which He the Father <clears throat> freely bestowed on us in 
his beloved son. In the beloved, that's a reference to Christ. So now Paul, Paul the last uh, reference at the end of verse 6 is Christ, the beloved son. So now, verse 7, in him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. So the focus here is, is on the redemptive work that Christ does on the cross. Now, there are many other aspects of the atonement that Paul talks about elsewhere in other passages. So, so I mean, we could put together a, a more holistic understanding of the atonement. But in this text, his focus really is on redemption. Redemption refers to the particular work of God purchasing us through his son. That Christ makes a payment necessary to purchase us from our slavery to Satan and our slavery to sin. You know, every unbeliever out there, outside of Christ, which is true for every one of us until we are saved, every one of us is a slave to sin, <clears throat> isn't that clear in Romans 6, and a slave to Satan. He holds all unbelievers in his power, according to 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. He is actively at work keeping us from seeing what? The light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. So indeed, Satan has a hold upon us. Sin has, has, has a bondage over our lives such that we are incapable of living a life <clears throat> that would please God, incapable of making any choices. That's not an overstatement. That would be pleasing to God, that would be honoring to God. Remember in Romans 8, we read these sobering words that we who are in the flesh <clears throat> The, the mindset in the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh, that's every unbeliever who doesn't have the Spirit, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's Romans 8, verses 6 uh, to 8. And so indeed we realize we, we, we are helpless and hopeless apart from being redeemed, being bought out of that slavery, <clears throat> which Christ does for us. He's the one who purchases, offers the purchase price necessary that we might be set free from the bondage of Satan and sin. Now, some of us might wonder, why was that redemption necessary in Christ when God had already set up earlier a sacrificial system? Wasn't there already a redemption system in place as in the Old Testament, uh, b believers would offer animal sacrifices? And by that, that sacrifice would pay, so it would seem, uh, for the sins so that they could be forgiven. Emphasis here, the forgiveness of sins through the blood. That's, it, that's here in this text. Through the blood of those animals. <clears throat> so what's the difference between what happened with those animal sacrifices of the Old Testament and now Christ coming? And here's the answer, my friends. According to the book of Hebrews, this is a real shocker. Hebrews 10 verse 4. The blood of bulls and goats can not take away sin. So you realize, wow, what an incredible <clears throat> realization this is when you see this. You realize all of those sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament that were required by God to do, none of them paid for any sin at all. It is not as though they, they, paid, they paid the first 30%, and then when Christ came, He paid the last 70%. Oh, no. They paid zero. So it's only when Christ comes that the payment is actually made. So what was the point of those sacrifices then in the Old Testament? And the point is, they were looking forward to a, they, they were types of or pictures of a future payment that would come. That all the sin in the Old Testament was forgiven only because of not that payment, but what that payment signaled. And that is a future payment that would come that came only in Christ. It's kind of like this. This is an analogy. If you go this afternoon to, say, Target... And, and purchase something there. Let, let's say you, you, you uh, get, get a shirt. You buy a shirt at Target. Well, you go up to the, to the checkout stand and you hand them a credit card. And, uh, and using that credit card, signing the slip, they will let you walk out the door without being stopped as a thief 
even though you have paid how much for that shirt? And the answer is you have paid zero. You haven't even made a down payment on it, right? You have paid zero. You have not paid a penny for that shirt, and yet you can legally walk out of the store without being stopped as a thief. Why is that the case? Because you have signed a credit card slip obligating you to a future payment. If you don't make that future payment, you are a thief. Indeed. To a future payment. Only at which point is it paid for, right? So here, here is the deal, my friends. Every single animal sacrifice offered in the Old Testament was offered with a legal payment, with, with, with an obligation for a legal payment to be made later. It is, though, it, is, it is as though someone signed every single credit card slip, right, of every single sacrifice offered, obligating himself to a future payment. Who was it who signed every one of those credit card slips in the Old Testament? God. God did. The Father did, to be more precise. The Father did obligating himself to a future payment that would be made when his son came. Really, this is the point of Romans 3, 21 to 26, where Paul talks there about the fact that God passed over sins previously committed. He didn't pay them. He passed over them previously committed in order to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. You see it? He demonstrates he is righteous in forgiving sin because now there is a basis for doing so. Apart from the death of Christ, there is no payment whatsoever. But when Christ comes, he pays for all sin. Oh, don't you love, I think it's the third verse of it is well with my soul. My sin Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Praise be to God. Through Christ, our sin is paid for. We are redeemed. <clears throat> the slavery, the bondage of sin ends because Christ paid everything necessary to bring about our forgiveness, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. So my friends, it is only through what Christ has done. There is no other way to experience forgiveness of sin. There is no other sacrifice that has actually atoned for sin. There is no other Savior other than Jesus. He is the only Savior, but oh my, what a gloriously effective Savior He is. All of our sin paid for by His death on the cross, accessed so that we receive the benefit of it through faith in Christ. Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Do, do you think there is some other way that your sin can be removed? My friend, it is only through what the Father has done in sending His Son to be the one who would redeem us from our sin. And by faith we enter into it. As we see next, as we move on now to the Spirit, the Father is the grand architect of our salvation. The glorious accomplishment of our salvation is through the Son. And now the gracious application of salvation is through the Spirit. And here we pick up at verses 13 and 14. Verses 13 and 14, where the Spirit is highlighted. Verse 13, Paul writes, In Him that is in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. 
Now look with me, in verse 13, isn't it interesting that Paul makes clear that our access to the benefits of what Christ has done, receiving the forgiveness of sin that he has secured in his death on the cross, the benefits of that are only brought to us through faith. So look at what he says in verse 13. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, so guess what? We have to hear the gospel to be saved. People who have not heard the gospel, who do not know of Christ, cannot be saved. They must hear and, and believe in Christ to be saved. So, so Paul says, to those of you who have heard the message of truth, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. You see it. So indeed, there is this knowledge of Christ, which then is believed by the person by which then they are redeemed, they are saved, and they then receive the gift of the Spirit, as we'll see here in, in a moment. But let me just camp on this for one moment more. There is a, a view that is uh, held by a number of professing evangelicals today, and it's, I, I suspect it's a view that is widely held at a popular level in many of our churches, uh, a view that is not the, 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 the long-standing uh, view of, of uh, Christian orthodoxy, but nonetheless, it's a, it's a popular view out there today, and that is that people can be saved apart from knowledge of Christ and belief in Christ, and, and, and they, can, they can know God by creation, for example, uh, the, the created world, and, and perhaps even know vestiges of who God is through other religions. Some people are arguing that as well. But my friends, this is a vain and dangerous uh, speculation that is not grounded in Scripture. Scripture makes clear that people must know of Christ and believe in Christ to be saved. Hence, the necessity, you know what I'm going to say next, right? Of missions. People have to go. I mean, Paul makes this so clear in Romans chapter 10. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. But how shall they call upon Him whom they have not believed? How shall they believe unless they hear? How shall they hear unless someone preach? How shall they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good tidings. So indeed, my friends, people must be sent in order to preach, in order for others to hear, in order to believe, in order to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And Paul knows that. He knows <clears throat> this has to be the case. I just warn you, do not enter into some speculation of hopefulness that would think that people are okay. They have saving revelation already in their presence apart from knowledge of Christ and the gospel. Indeed, they do not they must hear. Someone must go. So indeed, if you feel, even, at the, even upon hearing those words, the Lord tugging at your heart, I would, I would ask you to pray fervently whether you're one of those people. I mean, there, there, there must be a, a significant number of more missionaries who are going to go to finish this, this uh, reach that we have yet to finish among the unreached peoples of the world. Still, conservatively, two billion people in the world today have never heard Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So may God work in us to give us, we, I mean, honestly, we either are senders or goers, or we are unfaithful to Christ. We are either senders, which means we give. We give of our children. I'm a dad. I have a daughter, single daughter, who is about to head off as a missionary. We give of our children. We give of our finances. We give that the gospel may go, go forward, or we go. But what is not an option for Christian believers who are faithful to Christ is to be neither a sender or a goer. It's that simple. So may God help us. Indeed, they must hear the gospel they must believe that gospel. Then what happens when they believe? When they believe, verse 13, they are sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of, 
of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. So Paul signals here two things about the work of the Spirit. The first one is in verse 13, where he says, we are sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. So what the Holy Spirit does is He puts us into Christ. We, we are, as it were, baptized into Christ. That's the language in, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. We are baptized into Christ by the Spirit. Here, the word is we are sealed in Christ. And the fact that God the Holy Spirit, think of it, He is omnipotent, seals us in Christ. Who can break that seal? It's impossible. It's one of the strongest supports anywhere in the Bible for the doctrine of eternal security. That one who has truly, savingly believed in Christ can never lose their salvation. Indeed, because it is the Spirit who is the omnipotent Spirit. The Almighty Spirit holds us in Christ. And so all those who are genuinely Christians. who have, Now, you have to keep in mind, there is such a thing as false profession of faith. So I need to say very clearly, if one has savingly, truly believed in Christ, is genuinely saved, they can never lose their salvation. They are sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. Then verse 14, he only adds to that and says here that the Spirit now is given to us. It's not only that we're put into Christ, but the Spirit is given to us. We are, we are indwelt with the Spirit, and the giving of the Spirit to us is a pledge from the Father of our future inheritance. The closest illustration we have in our culture that, that uh, I, I think will resonate with most of us, it's as if the Father has given us an engagement ring, right? It, it's, a, it's a token, a pledge of, of a promise of what is yet to come. The full inheritance will be ours. How do we know it will be ours? Because He gave us the Spirit, which signals His intention to, to bring us into the fullness of the inheritance of Christ Himself. We are co-heirs with Christ forever. I am looking in this room at the wealthiest people in the universe. Because you, my friends, and I, <clears throat> have entered into the inheritance of Christ, and He has the universe. It is all His. Indeed, we are co-heirs with Him of that. So, the, 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 the Father has designed then for His Spirit to put us into Christ and then to give us the Spirit by which we know we are His. So we cry out by the Spirit, Abba, Father, because we know that from the Spirit within that we belong to Christ. So indeed, the Father is the grand architect of our salvation. The Son, the one who accomplishes, the glorious accomplishment is through the Son. And the Spirit, the gracious application comes by the Spirit, bringing us into Christ and causing us to be His forever. Now, a few points of application as we bring this to a close this morning. First of all, the most obvious thing, marvel at the beauty of the triune God and of the salvation that He has accomplished. I mean, honestly, isn't there a richness in thinking about the work of salvation as we think of the distinctive and yet unified, you know, we don't want to use, lose either one of those, the distinctive and unified work of Father and Son and Spirit. <clears throat> that it's the three together that bring about the fullness of our salvation. Secondly, consider the work of the Trinitarian persons as one of rich harmony, not simple unison. One in which there is a unity of work without sameness and a diversity of roles without discord. I think that image of harmony, now if you're not musically oriented at all, you, you, this, may be, this analogy may be lost on you, I don't know, but you know, harmony, you know, most of the time when we sing congregational singing, we sing unison, right? We all sing the same notes, the, the melody line of, of the song that we're singing. But have you ever heard, a, say, say a, a mixed quartet or, or a small ensemble who are singing and they begin in unison and then they break into parts? Oh, my. You know, the, the richness of harmony. So here, here is a great image, illustration of the Trinity itself where each person sings the appropriate line of notes. They don't sing in unison. And they, they, they sing distinct lines of notes. But this is not a distinction that produces discord. That happens too. I'll give you an example of that. Put three three-year-olds on the same piano bench uh, banging on the keyboard. That's, 
That's distinction with discord, right? But, but here we have a distinction that is not discord and a unity that is not unison. It, it is harmony, harmony, where each one sings the, the, the line of notes. I take it that the father wrote the composition, just to use that illustration a bit more. Who wrote the music? I think the father did. And he wrote the melody line to be sung by his son, right? He, he, he gets the, the main part in this. And, and the supporting lines, really, are the spirit and the father in this, because they both want the son to be exalted. And... and, and and, and so the, each one of them sings the lines they do, and together they produce this, this glorious, beautiful sound that can only happen through the richness of the three singing together. And you know, this is such an amazing illustration of how, how body life should work in a church and how a family at home should function, where there is, we celebrate a unity that is not unison. We have distinct gifts. We have different personalities. I mean, I know some of you are quirky. I'm glad I'm not. But, uh, you, know, but you know, some of you no doubt are pretty quirky people, you know. So God, God has made us different. And so we celebrate distinction, but we want distinction that is not discord, Right? We, we want a fundamental unity where we are pulling together. We're all working for common purpose and cause where we all want to see a Christ honored and, and, and all of us become more and more like Christ. So if we could catch this in a church where we celebrate the right kind of difference and the right kind of unity, oh my, how healthy we can be as churches and as homes. All right, then finally, last point here. Understand, within the Trinity, the intrinsic authority submission structure within Trinitarian relations, that is, the relations of the very Trinitarian persons themselves, and embrace the relevance to human life made in God's image. Authority and submission in relations of husbands and wives and church leadership and church members. And of course, I'm going to say more on this in the conference that follows tonight and Monday night, but it's just so amazing, isn't it? The Father has primacy in that relationship. He has ultimate authority. The Son does what He does because the Father sends Him. The Father gives Him the work that He does, and the Son submits to the Father. There is in the Trinity an eternal authority and submission relationship. Hence, when He creates us, guess what He does? We who are made in the image of God. He makes us equal in essence. Men and women Fully image of God, equal in value, in, in dignity, but, but distinct in roles that they are to carry out. So he invests in men, male headship in the home, in the church, that reflects something of who God is, equal in essence, distinct in roles, as he reflects that in our human relationships. So indeed, what an amazing God God is. What a glorious triune God we see in Scripture. And may we celebrate the greatness of our salvation as designed by the Father, accomplished by the Son, applied by the Spirit, enter into the glory of the work of the one God in saving us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege we've had this morning to look at glorious truth from your word about who you are as Father, Son, and Spirit. And we do thank you from the bottom of our hearts for the gift of Christ. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. And then uh, for, for sending your Spirit to, to enliven our hearts to believe that word of the gospel and to receive the, the beginnings of what will go on for eternity of the blessings you've designed for us. We thank you and praise you in the name of our Savior and Lord Jesus. Amen.